Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of On the River of History. I'm your host, Joan Tremell, historian in residence. In this series, I will be taking up the task of explaining the history of the world. As any historian may tell you, it is never an easy job, and it is certainly never one that will be truly complete. Put basically, there is just so much to tell, and so many ways to tell it. While I am devoted to my goal of keeping this series holistic in scope, it may be inevitable that some parts of the story will be left out. In preparation for this series, I had gone through several different options for how I wanted to tell this story. One way was an old-fashioned route, going through a complete nation's history from past to present and then on to the next nation and starting the same process over, much like Will and Ariel Durant or Henry Cabot Lodge. Another way was to focus on geography, staying on one continent, going through the history of all the societies that were birthed there, and moving on, a method similar to the work of Ralph Lytton or Glenn King. In the end, I settled on a compromise. Our journey on the river of history begins with the formation of the earth and the subsequent origin and evolution of living things. Afterward, the focus will shift to just one organism, that being, of course, our own species, Homo sapiens. Following humanity's spread across the world, and the various ways in which different peoples adapted to the Ice Ages and their aftermath, the series becomes slightly episodic. While always moving forwards in time, I will be jumping from various geographic locations, tracing different societies as they develop and change. For example, in the story of China's history, I will discuss the rise of states in the Shang Dynasty, before leaving to focus on another region. But in time, I will return to China to discuss what happens next. And this will continue further and further forwards, towards modern times. As far as what will be discussed itself, I do not intend to just simply talk about the basics of a nation's rise and fall, or single out major events like key battles. When relevant interest arises, I will take the time to discuss the different aspects of a historic society, breaking down the intricacies of its art, language, belief systems, architecture, and science, as well as notable individuals. Indeed, the river is vast, and we will sail it together. For all intents and purposes, this episode acts as a sort of prologue. Before we jump to the main narrative, I'd like to spend some time talking to you all today about historiography. This is a study of how historians look at and record history, be it that of their home nation or of the globe. In doing so, I hope to share with you all just how complicated it can be to write a history of anything, really. There are many ways to do it, and they all have their pros and cons. But now comes the million dollar question. What is history? In analyzing the various aspects of historiography, I hope to be able to provide an adequate answer. We often divide our past into two parts, history and prehistory. Prehistory, as the etymology suggests, is the time before history. So then, where is that cutoff point? The most common definition is that history begins when people started writing down records of events in their lives. As such, many historians tend to focus on documents, records, and journals, anything that can be traced to an individual, or many, at some point in the past, who can be named and perhaps traced to a living lineage. These can be found among families who have held on to these documents, or they can be found in places of worship banks, libraries, museums. So, in a sense, history would be tied to the practice of writing. With this in mind, we recognize that history would have begun at different times for different societies. The people of Egypt created hieroglyphics about 5,300 years ago. 
Sumerian cuneiform developed from earlier pictorial systems around a hundred years later. In present-day Pakistan, the people who settled along the Indus River Valley created a script, still undeciphered, 4,600 years ago, and the Minoans of Crete made an equally undeciphered script 3,900 years ago, though these latter two may have arisen from contact with peoples of Sumeria and Egypt. The written word did not see the light of day in the Americas until 2,400 years ago, probably among the Olmec. China gave us the last independently created writing system roughly 4,500 years ago. Over time, as peoples and ideas moved across the world, so too did their writing systems, slowly changing and developing new forms. Thus, the histories of those different societies could officially begin. In keeping with this concept, we must also recognize that many peoples around the world would not have had their own histories because they never developed writing. For the indigenous peoples of Australia, New Guinea, much of the other Pacific Islands, most of the Americas, and in vast regions of Africa and Asia, their histories came when outsiders, primarily Europeans, introduced writing to them. In keeping with the good definition for history that we want to work with, should this be so? I say no. As many indigenous peoples will tell you, there are other ways of recording the events of the past. Oral traditions are words and stories transferred by speech. These have often been dismissed by historians and others on the assumption that a they are unreliable because of the nature of human communication, essentially working like one long game of telephone, and b they can only go back a few generations. But continuing work with First Nations peoples are shattering those assumptions. Take Aboriginal Australians, for instance. Linguist Dr. Nick Reed and colleague Patrick Noon have worked with various nations throughout the island continent and were able to analyze 18 oral histories and stories. They tell of times when the continent looked different from the present day. The Great Barrier Reef was originally connected to the mainland of Queensland and the Wesley Islands near Carpentaria formed a sharp peninsula. What fascinated these researchers was not so much the stories themselves, but the tidbits of information preserved within them. It is nothing new to historical geologists that Australia's coastlines looked very different once upon a time, with the growth and decline of the great glaciers of the northern hemisphere during the ice ages. The sea level rose and fell in tow. Parts of the coastline originally extended for hundreds of miles, and New Guinea and Tasmania belong to the same landmass. For living Aboriginal Australians to keep these memories of these environmental changes in their stories means that their oral histories extend not for centuries, but for thousands of years. Dr. Nick Reed has estimated that the oldest of these histories could be at least 10 to 12,000 years old. The situation is similar for Indigenous Americans, too. The Klamath, who live in present-day Oregon and California, have an oral history of a large volcano that once erupted later collapsed and forming what they call Giwas, what you may know as Crater Lake. Geologists, again, are very familiar with the formation of Crater Lake. Like many such phenomena, after the caldera cools, rain falls and slowly fills in the crater until it turns into a lake. This particular event has been dated to 7,700 years ago, and that means that the Klamath have retained this cultural memory in their stories for that long. It is clear that oral traditions can be just as accurate and just as informative as written records. I have just spoken of the memories of geologic events, but that is just a small fraction of the knowledge preserved in this manner. There are tens of thousands of myths, medicines, recipes, natural histories, agricultural techniques, chronologies, and other aspects of society that have lasted millennia. 
I think the point has been made. Whether written or spoken, history should not be so clear-cut as this. Besides, though both methods are valuable in their own ways, they can be prone to issues. It cannot be denied that biases have always been present in many historical records. Sometimes people lie, or do not recall things clearly. Sometimes there are contradictions between different texts that report on the same events. Sometimes not enough information on a particular battle or ceremony or holiday was not collected, and the author was forced to make up the details. Place names are recorded, but never their locations. Documents may lack signatures or dates. Perhaps most frustrating of all, the livelihoods of one nation's people can be observed and recorded by representatives of another neighboring nation. Should these nations be in conflict with each other, those records may be biased and even derogatory, and the historians have to figure out fact from farce. What then? To continue this episode, please go to part two.